Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, the tirade filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. I am Will Thompson. I am Raw. That'll work. Yeah, he's got the medallion to prove it, too. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all damn glad to have you. Uh, this is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives will wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you all to love what you love, but for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. If you didn't get Will's joke in, who would? Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, the Roland Emmerich dis- non-disaster film, Stargate from 1994. It's been recommended to us by our returning guest, Mark Krawcheck of Special Mark Productions. Mark, Mark, say hello to everybody. Sure, blame me. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is how guests work, Mark. Come on. Now. I know. Okay. I know. I did. Yeah. I did pick it. In all honesty, I did pick it. Hey, but we, I, we've it all happened. been kicked off. We've all been kicked off Ian's kicking the seat show. This is how guests work. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I'm happy to be here again. It's it is a true honor. Thank you. Hard to be, interesting to be on the other side of the mic, uh, so to speak. So. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? So our format here is this. The guest, of course, will go first. Uh, and any lover that goes with the guest will have their five uninterrupted minutes to shower their praise, state their high-minded kids for the love that is of Stargate. Uh, the hater, will, all three stars of Will, will follow with five uninterrupted minutes of his own to present any counterpoints to any manner of intellectual scorched earth or a whole lot of fucking sand. After that, we'll open it up for 15 to 50 minutes of shared conversation where the hissy fit really gets chippy. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't have another Roland Emmerich joke. Let's go. Um, real quick, uh, as we're rolling yep. along. Um, oh. hey, um, did name the two actors in, in primary roles in this movie that are Oscar-nominated actors? Hmm. Uh, did Jay Davidson get a nomination for The Crying Game? Sure did. Yes. That means the other would be Spader, Jaiman Hunso for uh, yes. Amistad, oh, yeah. right? Credited. Well, he's got two for In America and Amistad, I believe. I don't know. I he's got two. He got in maybe, America. Yeah, or maybe Blood Blood Diamond. I can't remember. Blood he, Diamond. He's got two. I bet Blood Diamond. Yeah, I bet he's it was got Blood two. Diamond for supporting. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's got he's got two, but and he's credited in this film as just Jimon. Um, yeah, I believe this was around the same time he made his debut as a bouncer in Beverly Hills 90210 uh, was one of his first roles. This seems to be one of his first uh, movies as well, I would assume, 1994. Yeah, so, yeah we're yeah. talking anyway. years before Amistad put him on the map. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, this, so yeah, that's a little um, little oh, Oscar trivia for you. We got him right? There wasn't more? Okay, cool. I mean, there may be more in like smaller roles that I don't know about, but uh, I looked up Vivica Lindfors, uh, who mm-hmm. is the the older version of the girl who finds the bracelet that she had won an Emmy award, but not an Oscar. I um, assume James Spader has won himself an Emmy or two no, in his time. Emmy. He's definitely it's won it's some Emmys for sure. Emmys. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, but uh, you know, I have a question real quick before, uh, before uh, Mark goes into his spiel on Stargate. I cannot find anything to back this up on IMDb or anywhere else. But I swear to God, the young version of that girl, Catherine Langford, in 1928—that—that's got to be Danielle Harris, right? It just uh, looks like Danielle Harris. I have to it, dig on IMDb for that one. It doesn't say anything anywhere that it is, but it looks just like her. And I was like, "Oh, Danielle Harris is in this for 13 <laughs> seconds." So, Wait, but the young—the young version of the old woman who yes. got the whole movie started. They yeah. list her in the cast here. 
Do they? It's somebody. Hold on. Let me get to Wikipedia. You guys keep talking and do your thing, but. I'll, yeah, I'm looking at it too, but let's Mark go ahead and do your five minutes while we try to solve this Daniel Harris mystery. Okay, <laughs> I could do that. So Stargate, the uh, many people could blame this film for the disaster films that we got that were disasters from Roland Emmerich afterwards, but this was the film that kind of put him on the map. And for me, uh, being a Star Wars guy, being uh, looking for sci-fi. Stargate in 94 uh, was one that really appealed to me. It was a, a different approach to science fiction. I didn't know quite what to expect from the trailers going into it. Uh, so when, because the trailers did give some hints of what's going on, but you're like, oh man, I got it, you know, as a sci-fi fan and going into it, I loved the cast. And yeah, it's a it's an interesting film on a on a theory that not a lot of people at the time were possibly uh, aware of, uh, and in that the pyramids were created by aliens. And this is, I think, one of the first movies to ever actually like wide release films that actually kind of addresses that theory that's been around for a while uh, and plays with it, and that's the whole premise of it. Uh, with the unique casting of James Spader in a non-sexual role uh, was also unique. Uh, but his Daniel Jackson, I really enjoy his. <laughs> I, I really enjoy the guy because, again, what touted itself, at least in the trailers, is kind of an action sci-fi film. While there is action in here, this is a little bit more of the subdued sci-fi, which may be why it kind of turned some folks off the production design is amazing in here and the world building is i think top notch for especially uh, a mid 90s type sci-fi to where they still used a lot of practical effects and the sets and production was just wild the amalgamation which i always love stuff that gets mashed together uh, of ancient egypt and modern technology kind of mixed together uh, I think was also appealed to me. I'm a big visual guy. And so the film visually was very appealing, but I dug the script as well. It, it, it was more than just, uh, Hey, uh, Kurt Russell's the Colonel Jack O'Neill guy. And he's a scientist and they're going to blow shit up. Um, you know, there, there, there was thought behind it. And so when I watched it and, and humor as well, but a little more subtle humor in it, uh, more of the fish out of water humor. I I I appreciated that as well. I'm not going to say that this is like, oh my god, groundbreaking sci-fi, but for a time period where science fiction was kind of waning a little bit, I would I would argue in the 90s. After the 80s, we had so much of it. I think I was hungry for something that was actually alien. You know, that not on Earth. Which, while it is very Earth-like, it's still technically not on Earth. You've got unusual creatures, you've got a different culture, uh, and things going on. And I think that's what appeals to me the most, and I think that's what appeals to a lot of people with this, which is funny, coming from the disaster guy, Roland Emmerich, this, if you look at it on, a, on the grand scale of things, is not the epic, epic film that, uh, you know, disaster film that he became known for. So it's kind of funny that this was one of the first films that kind of put him on the map uh, as well. So there's a lot of things that I appreciated about it. I did watch the shows later on in syndication when they came out, all the shows and the spinoffs and everything. And 
I think it's just the story and the mythology, them playing with mythos that is familiar and giving it a sci-fi spin is what really appealed to me for this. And James Spader actually puts in a great uh, non-pervy role in this, uh, you know, which <laughs> and I say that because the very next year he did Crash. So I right. mean, back, you back know, to the norm. But you know, back to the norm. And and if you look at his other library, his other filmography, all of them are vor- more of a mature nature. So for having him in a role like this and playing off Kurt Russell, who it's Kurt Russell, I'll watch him in anything. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, that's what appealed to me was just a time when there was like really something that felt like true sci-fi, a bit of a drought during that time. And the fact that I thought the mashup of things was interesting. Uh, even if they did reuse the Trek six explosion at the end. Um, but overall, oh, that, it's, that, yes, yes I, overall, that. I'm not going to say that it's groundbreaking. Wow. Sci-fi, but I think it really put it back to where people realized it was marketable. Nicely done. No, I, I got to follow a lot of that. Um, I don't quite put it on the, that highest of a pedestal, but um, there is enough there to be impressed. And uh, uh, especially now that I kind of, you know, turn back the hands of time from where we are now. And I, I, we shouldn't have to do this for a 94 movie, but at the same time here, here with us, you know, being able to reflect on it now, it, it kind of plays where for this to be an original idea. Now I know there's some lawsuit for some high school kid who supposedly made this up in his spiral notebook or something, but uh, no, for this to be a uh, legitimate original science fiction, you're right in a nineties drought where the year before was Jurassic park. The year after was, uh, you know, two years before it was lawnmower man. Like it, there and Jurassic park is of course based on a novel, but uh, you know, the, the, the throwback, you know, serial kind of like, you know, zany, old school swashbuckling science fiction vibe that, that comes out of this movie is there. It's not, I don't think they, they nail it over the fence home run style, but enough of it is there where you, there's just enough to be impressed with where I'm with Mark as a visual guy, the, the prop work and the tech from, you know, the Patrick Totopoulos and his team and the production designed by Holger Gross and all those costumes by Joseph Poro. There's just a lot there. And each of them would kind of stay in rolling circle and, you know, do do a lot of his movies after that. And obviously other things since then, like, for example, the costume guy here does The Mandalorian, you know, so like the, the there's this is kind of a, a fun place to get Roland Emmerich. And uh, yeah, I, I do agree. We've kind of created a monster with him since, but uh, you know, between universal soldier before this, and then this movie, and then of course, independence day was next for him and, and huge and amazing. But um, I, as I, I admit, I I've grown, grown fonder of this movie with time where mm-hmm. in 94, I didn't think much of it. Or I, it was lost to me that where it was just like, Oh, this is boring Egyptology stuff. They're just trying to be an archeology span movie and they're trying to be a space movie. And it just didn't Spader is just kind of Spader's tricky or not the best. Or we spent a whole lot of time with like Bedouin squalor and not a lot of like things going on. Like once the big ship shows up and encapsulates that pyramid and business picks up, thank goodness. Cause it was a drag there for a bit. But, um, but no, looking back on it now, um, in the last bunch of years, I've been trying to be more of a book reader where I get, I've been really into uh, old school pulpy science fiction, like Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Tarzan stuff, the John Carter stuff, um, Jules Verne, HG Wells, where I've, I've, I've enjoyed the, you know, turn of the century and, and even the 19th century versions of science fiction, so to speak. And this movie feels like something 
batshit crazy enough and fluid enough and mythic enough, as Mark said, to be of that kind of ilk. And now that we've gone that far, you know, post Star Wars and whatnot, that that this movie has gets me in a soft spot. It's not I'm still gonna be a guy who will favor John Carter over something like this. I that's my level of sci-fi and I love the books and all that. But uh yeah, there's something to be said for just having the balls to kind of put something together and uh and to kind of do it with what they could in ninety four and in yeah, in a bit of a time where you could tell the movie went all in on computers, like the, the opening 30 minutes of every little measured thing in that room, which is we've seen enough <laughs> military control room scenes before. But like they had a they had a computer model for everything. And it looked so cool in 94 because we were too busy playing solitaire on our computers in 94. So for them <laughs> to have for them to have all that built up and look so great as it was, it just, you know, they put so much detail into its ideas that I really have to tip my hat. The execution's not the greatest with it, where I think, you know, you mm -hmm. need a bit more of a compelling I, not necessarily a more compelling romance because uh, the Shuri character is not the best and and Spader turning down a pair of tits for the first time in his cinematic life. I, <laughs> I, couldn't, I didn't see that coming either. But um, yeah, like and of course you have an A plus score from David Arnold where the sweep of old oh, school God. action is so good and so there where you can play this movie on isolated soundtrack and have a mm -hmm. you can ignore some of the script and ignore some of the silly stuff and see a rich movie. So I think there's enough here to really enjoy and love. I know I remember reading where Roger Ebert gave this one star and absolutely hated it. But I realized that's a guy who likely grew up on, you know, the mainline, you know, really good serials. And of course, the Indiana Jonesy things that wanted to come before it, where this movie doesn't quite get there in terms of swash and buckle. But uh, there's enough to enjoy and appreciate. I never really did catch on to the TV shows after it. But uh, this is a movie where. I don't know. It's one of those things where I know they planned for three and they never got to two or three, but there's a woulda, coulda, shoulda, which could be really fun here. Yeah, I I want to piggyback off of that. Uh, one thing I really loved about this movie is it's very uh, and it's very like fifties sci-fi in terms of mm -hmm. the films. Like if you watch like kind of some older sci-fi epics, like you know, I don't know, like This Island Earth or something, it's 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 a lot of setup. But a lot of payoff in terms of they put a lot of put a lot of effort into, you know, the visual effects and the set design. And it, it makes you it makes you wait for a nice payoff. It is a little absurd, like 50s stuff, too, where it's kind of like and I'm ripping this off of MST3K a little bit. But, you know, when it's like, oh, when are we going into the Stargate Tuesday? Great. Like, you know, like it's not, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of planning going on to a lot of this stuff, but it, it's harmless. It's harmless sci fi fun stuff. And. And as I put in my review uh, for this on Letterboxd, I just said this is probably the most exquisitely produced boring movie I've ever watched. <laughs> That's a shame because the movie, like, it has everything that I love about this. It has stop motion animation. It has early CGI that's not too much. It has uh, it has matte paintings. It has miniatures. It has, you know, it has so much stuff that I absolutely adore in science fiction and horror filmmaking. Um, cool costume design. Uh, I'm not a big fan of, um, like, uh, ad, uh, advanced civilizations, like, meeting, like, uh, like tribal, you know, whatever you want to call it. Like, I'm not a big fan of, like, any movie where, like, they're suddenly, like, in a village somewhere, like, in the desert. Like, that, that stuff always kind of, 
I don't like because you know that it's going to be like 30 minutes of them trying to be like, hey, we're talking to each other. How are we talking? Like, you know, just just cut to the chase. Like, ha- have have someone who has guns, too, is I guess my point. But uh, everything in there is, is perfect. It's got a great mythology. It's, a, it's almost like a great pilot for a series, you know? And mm-hmm. obviously this did inspire, you know, countless <laughs> series, at least three TV series over... 15 years and, and TV movies and things like that. I think, I think that the problem with that is, is that this is so well produced. And I did try to watch Stargate SG one once and I watched two <laughs> episodes. And the problem is, is the problem is just like, just like anything like Star Trek or anything else, you know, that was made at a certain time with a lower budget. I mean, it's going to look bad. And like the, the episodes I watched, it was very clearly a low budget, thing and i wasn't like enthused about it and the problem the problem with this movie it's not really a problem it works for the movie is that there's such a there's so many high concepts and things that you can do with a story that i do kind of wish that there was sequels to this because even though i was bored through a lot of it i i, I just I, there were there, there were these be these things that happened that i was just like that is so cool that is so cool what a cool idea and it is you know in this ip driven world we have an original idea you know which is pretty neat and i like that and i love the design of the ships and the costumes and i and i I really love the idea this is something that i wish maybe would and maybe they explored in the tv show but i i do like this idea you know everyone a running joke these days is about you know ancient aliens on the history channel but i do like this idea of like you know there was like this kind of asshole alien that was just like oh here's a primitive civilization here i'll give you all of your mythology and i'll enslave you and then it became like a template of the culture of that race i kind of like that idea that like egyptians weren't really the creators of the pyramids it was really just this a-hole alien who was escaping his planet um that that seems ripe for exploration and i I really dig that but also just like i said you, you there's a couple things in the world that get me going. One of them, skeleton armies. You put a skeleton army in a movie. I'm probably going to like it a lot more. (laughs) I'm the same. I'm the same way with like, you know, villains with uh, like sci-fi villains with really deep voices and like large, like Pharaoh like creatures and and spaceships that look like the Cylon ships from the original Biostar Galactica shooting people. Like I will generally just be like, okay, cool. And, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, imagery that harkens back to Blade Runner with the pyramids and like the building, like the, the, the pyramid ship that lies on top of a pyramid, just cool stuff. Like just the imagery in this is phenomenal and it's just really cool. And, and I also like the idea that you have the, and this is another fifties concept. You know, you always had like your Lloyd Bridges or uh, Leslie Nielsen heroic badass. And then you would have like the dorky, you know, scientist character. And that, 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 have, that comes out here. I mean, this movie is absurd because at one point, you know, you have this incredibly intelligent linguist and James Spader. And you've also, then you've got like the, the jarhead who's like, give my regards to King Tut asshole. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> fucking awesome. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's cool. Like it, this movie is so freaking cool. I just wish it wasn't so boring, but that said, I, yeah, I, it makes me want to watch the TV show, which I know I'll never do. And I wish that there was two more sequels as intended to flesh out a really compelling idea. And I would love to see more movies that use miniatures and cool spaceship ideas again and again and again. 
All right. All right. It's looking good. Looking good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will break for a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends. Hey, this is Charlie, Triple C, from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at ruminationsradionetwork.com. All right, welcome back. Yeah, break it down here. Keep it going, fellas. Go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say is... Kind of like Jurassic Park, but even Jurassic Park, some of these special effects show their age. Not a lot, though. Jurassic Park still holds up today because of the mixture of limited use CGI, practical effects, everything, what they do with it. For the most part, Jurassic Park holds up. You you watch it today, 99% of those effects, you're like, wow, and they are going to take you out of the effects, uh, out of the film. Uh, Stargate is the same way. Watching it again, the effects, when they do have to use some CGI, it is very sparse, but they are using actual sets with explosions. They're using miniatures. They built this stuff, and it helps this film age. Even if it's not the most exciting story, you look at this, it doesn't say, oh, well, that was made in 94. The effects in this overall, except maybe with the water Stargate now, Overall, though, oh, that's cool. I think that's a cool effect. And, and that's that cool. Up. That's that's applying the water special effects that came from the liquid metal from Terminator just two years earlier. And they applied it basically to here. Uh, you know, even that, though, looks cool. And when you're traveling through the Stargate, even that doesn't really show its age. Yep. And I think that's what helps me watching doing rewatches with this is the fact of even with the ships. When you get the climactic scene at the end with the ships attacking the guys on the ground, That's I thought, so okay, cool. maybe it blends really well. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. the, the CGI masks, when they press the button to take them off, I watched the Laserdisc because I own it on Laserdisc. I couldn't find my VHS of, of it, but <laughs> 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 I watched it on my Laserdisc and 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 the sound, oh man, yeah. that's not just the score, but the special effects and everything. Oh, the score is incredible, David Arnold. Yeah, so. it's but, so good. But I, I will piggyback on that, Mark, because I actually have always been a defender of this. I would say things from about, I'd say Jurassic Park. Um, I think early nineties. Um, I'm thinking primarily of Lawnmower Man and uh, the Full Moon feature arcade. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they. they they jumped ahead too much with the technology and they said, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to do something now that we can do. We can do technically, but to quote Jurassic park, we, we thought about whether we could, we didn't think about whether we should. Right. And, but I think everything from about 93, not everything, obviously depending on the budget, but in terms of big budget, sci-fi action set piece stuff that uses visual effects, I would say anything from 93 to 99 ending in the matrix because mm-hmm. it still looks great. Like to me, one of the other gold standards of visual effects that still look phenomenal is the fifth element. Like you oh, watch yeah. the fifth element, it still looks um, incredible. Yeah, for and, 97. Uh, I'll tip my hat. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I mean, maybe I like can't the city. In the movie, maybe, personally, but yeah, it looks good. Yeah. Well, that's oh, that's one of my all time favorites. Yeah, that's a great I movie. Know. So shut up. So, shut up, Tom. so <laughs> uh, but. Um, no, but like the the thing is, and, and the Matrix, and this is what they forgot when they made the Matrix sequels, is the Matrix still used sets, 
mm-hmm. uh, miniatures. And Lord of the Rings, too. I, I give Lord of the Rings some credit. Um, maybe towards the end of Return of the King, it, it looks a little bit uh, a little bit computery towards the end. But for the most part, uh, I'll put the cutoff point at Lord of the Rings because they still knew that it was a supplement, not the story itself. You know, it was uh, miniatures were still a thing. It gives you that realism, that texture. You know, uh, matte paintings were still a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually think special effects from this era still look pristine and great. I mean, of yeah, course there's going to be some age, but I just, I don't, I don't let that stuff bother me. And I, and I think that one Thank of the people that ruined that was George Lucas himself. Ironically, the person who revolutionized visual effects ruined it because he said, man, my visual effects don't really look great in Star Wars. I'm going to redo all of them. And it was horrible. Yeah. And because it ruined it ruined the 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 palette of it, like you know what I mean. It would be like it would be like adding a person in the Mona Lisa or something. Like it just wouldn't make sense contextually. Yeah. And I, so yeah, this this to me, I was watching this and I was like, other. I think the only effect that didn't work uh, is when the pyramid ship was in space at the end. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I think I think before the explosion, the explosion looks great, and that might be from Undiscovered Country, which. That effect still blows my mind from 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Discovered Country. I'm just like, holy yeah. shit! How do they do that? Like, that yeah. looks so amazing. But I think when it's floating in space, it's just uh, it is an awkward design to kind of have <laughs> a, a big pyramid in space. You know, uh, that's the yeah. only one. But yeah, everything to me, I think works just fantastic. Like, I, I just I think it's I would I would be able to show this to my kids, and oh, they'd be like, oh, this is so old and tacky. They'd be like. Oh, that's pretty cool. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. has that. It, it looks fantastic. It, it's an amazingly, exquisitely yeah. done film on the production and art design basis. And you could still, you could still kind of say, "Hey, we're watching a throwback of a throwback." At that point, even when you show yeah. this to kids, because you got. I mean, if I were to show this to a Marvel kid, they're going to be as bored as you are, Marvel shells. So, like, but you could still <laughs> kind of take a, you know, a, a nice, open-minded kid, a kid who's into books, a kid who's into social. Like, there's enough, like little hooks of like Egyptology and uh, you know, and just obviously the physical effects of shooting right there in the desert and whatnot, where there's enough of that, where with the right nerdy kid, they would be into it. But unfortunately with, with a couple of kids who need a little bit more sizzle and pop, it's, there's not enough here for that. Well, I'm, I'm not going to say I was, I was say I'm bored yeah. because there wasn't Marvel like action. I'm bored because uh, I, I don't think, I don't think Emmerich, first of all, Spader is great. I, I, I agree. He's a great, He's a great actor, and Kurt Russell is a great actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think they necessarily rise to the material at play here. The reason yeah. why something like Independence Day, which has 45 minutes of setup, is never oh, boring. I love that movie. Me. Yeah, never no, The reason why it's never boring is because Jeff Goldblum, I hate this phrase, but he knew the assignment. You know, mm-hmm. Bill Pullman knew the assignment. Like, mm-hmm. James Spader did not want to do this movie. He said he was embarrassed uh-huh. to do it. And Kurt Russell turned it down a, a bunch of times. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, instead of getting the King Tut asshole thing, like we, we should have got the whole movie, um, they kind of make him a dour, sad person. I mean, for good oh, reasons. Yeah. But but like, uh-huh. I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that like, I never really bought any of the village characters. I don't think Same. Spader and Russell are that engaging. I, I just don't think it's like... But like, that's something... I, 
but that's something a right. Marvel movie gets right. Like that you got invested cast members who know the assignment, and even though it's a big assignment, they go for it. And right, that's right, the right, thing. Just... Like if I were if I were to change this movie, as much as I love Spader, as much as I love Russell, I'd replace him in a heartbeat for two people who are into it. That's what I'm saying. I, I think it's I the reason why I'm bored is because the visuals and the set design and the story, like they either don't go too much into the story and you don't have actors fully committed. So I think it's kind of like uh that's what bores me. I don't think I don't think Emmerich is like a very strong acting director. This to, is true. To be honest, <laughs> I think he is a spectacle. Like oh, one of the best. Know, yeah, one of the best. And and that's where it, the the film loses me is because I'm just not engaged with any of the humans. And like mm-hmm. at that point, I I can only love so many Egyptian spaceships blowing people up before mm-hmm. I have to have a, <laughs> yeah. a little bit more meat. So that's what I mean by I was bored. Yeah. And I he, wasn't, it's and, not engaged. Yeah, and he found the sweet spot with Independence Day because between Goldblum, Smith, even Connick Jr., even Crazy Randy Quaid, President Lone Star, like we're we're into that movie. You know, <laughs> they got us with that one. Yeah, well, and I mean, when you have this film, which later spawned three villains from the Marvel universe, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're right. talking. But, but when this came out in '94, um. I, you know, we were blown away by the visuals, but I think what you were saying, uh, Will, is he suffers from Lucas syndrome with this film in that he writes, he builds this wonderful world. I mean, this world, this mythology, this backup stuff is great. His characters could use some work. Don't get me wrong. I love Spader and I love Mm -hmm. Kurt Russell's characters. Sure. But if if I am taking the critical look, the side characters are barely Awful. there, yeah. except yeah. for the young prince who has his son, where we do have that one moment. But yeah. there's an interesting relationship with the grunts and the kids that could have been explored. There's uh-huh. more, Absolutely. you know, there's more interesting relationship with possibly the head of the the uh, the tribe and his daughter. And, you know, them thinking that whether or not Spader's got, there's a lot of potential here. And maybe he had planned on it for the later films to be explored mm-hmm. more. But if we look at just this film, I will say, yes, the characters uh, it, it had a lot more potential than what you got. You start to get it with Spader's character, with, with, with his scientists. You get it in the beginning, you know, with him not being taken seriously and him discovering this thing for two weeks that took him over a year to try to discover or two years. Uh, You know, Daniel Jackson in the beginning, once Daniel Jackson gets to the planet, he really Mm -hmm. gets flat. Even even the Jack O'Neill, they, when he's on earth, he's got some more depth. He's got more stuff going on. His kid freaking died because of a gun accident. I mean, there's a lot of weight you could put with that character. Once he gets to the planet, it it's kind of there, but it's almost like, oh, we forgot to put a reference in. Well, he can yell mm-hmm. at the kids for touching guns now, uh, but yeah. you don't really feel it with his character, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and it and that's the thing is you got a wonderful world. I think the characters could have probably used a little tailored as much as I enjoy this film. I fully acknowledge its warts and one of them is. I think the characters, but you get swept up in this world and this mythology yeah. so much. There's that, enough there to still love. 
Well, I right. think, well, with the exception of what Don just said, I think if I just isolated what you just said, you would have probably done my review for Avatar 2. <laughs> because I feel the same way. I got, see, Avatar 2, I got major prequel vibes from where it was like, wow, there's a lot of imagery here. And I know you really want me to jerk off to these whales, James Cameron, but I just cannot <laughs> get behind anything you're doing in this movie like uh see i got I, the dad I, feels i enjoyed the teen characters you know cliff uh, curtis uh, is i'll take cliff curtis to eric avari in this movie you know the yeah i was gonna give him they, some props because eric avari is one of those ham and egger actors he'll do anything yep. and he'll do it well and i like him that's true yeah he, he's but french stewart come on yeah they, they, well like, that's that's what I put in my review. I said I, I pretended I was a producer and talking to a casting agent, and I said, "Producer, we need some tried and true badass types for the military roles in this." Movie. <laughs> Who do you think? And the casting director goes, "French Stewart." And the producer goes, "Oh yeah, duh, that's a given." But who else? Like, yeah. <laughs> French Stewart as like a hard ass jarhead. Come on. But it, like, but that's what we're missing. Like, um, even like John Deal, another uh, even lesser hammer anger than Eric Avari. Like, you yeah. kind of need that. You need that number two. You know, I know Curtin. Obviously, you got Curtin James up top, but you kind of need that number three. Not necessarily comic relief, but just extra badass or extra virtue. You just need um, uh, like Oded Fur in the Mummy. You you need that one that that next that third tier guy who like compels you enough because he just squeezes everything he can out of whatever part it is, whether it's right. a, a a hero or a villain. But you're into it. Um, that no one else is into it beyond our top two and a little bit of Jay Davidson who just well, is dubbed yeah, to sound great. So Jay Davidson, you know, his, his, his kind of career is well-documented, you know, like he did the grind mm -hmm. game and then got an Oscar yeah. nomination and then kind of got overwhelmed by the attention and did Stargate. And then that was pretty much it. Like he was just like, I'm yeah. done acting. So, I mean, you can kind of tell in this one, I I'm, I'm a big fan of like the, um, subtle villains. Like I like, I love a villain who doesn't scream all the time and, mm -hmm do crazy mm, things so I, I i like his i like how he plays the character of very yeah. subdued but at the same time the film if you're playing with those 50s tropes and that out in that over the top mythology and stuff like that you, you kind of need someone chewing the scenery a little bit yeah a little a more guy. pump yeah something something mm -hmm. <laughs> apparently in the test the early test screenings they did not have a translation for when he was talking to his guys and the uh screening fell flat so they actually threw in translation for the you know the subtitles for his mm. character and uh then suddenly a lot of more people enjoyed it <laughs> yeah it helps a little bit because like you've got a bit of a you, you're in such a disconnected odd world that you you need a little you need a little something so i, I can well, see it I helping mean, i i'm in the right performer and no offense to Jay Davidson, he didn't have a whole lot of experience and this is True. actually kind of a meaty role to try to take after doing a drama. Um, mm. I think with, with a, a possibly more experienced actor, you could get away with it because yeah. if, especially if they've done theater, they could do things yeah. that will make you say that's why when they first come up to the, tribes folks in the desert and they meet uh they meet the chieftain uh played by eric avari who's awesome uh mm -hmm. i love him but you know meet him and even the other uh performers 
speaking in their dialect, you understood what they were saying Very just from so. facial expressions and body movement and stuff. So even if you didn't quite understand the language, you didn't need it subtitled because you could follow what they were saying. Yeah. They're just the physical scene. actors with expressions and body language. Right. Yeah. Eric is so good at that. And in a thousand parts, he's always normally an asshole or a, you know, a half villain, but he, he, he gets it. He's yeah. I'm with you. You need a, I, I call this like with the trademark, like fake trademark tag at the end of this, you do need a professional movie villain here and you don't have yeah. one because yeah. And whether it's a Rufus Sewell or a, you know, uh, there's so many like uh, a, a, a Jason Isaacs. You, you need somebody with a little bit more sizzle. So, yeah, don't get me wrong. And, and he, I'm trying to fantasy cast this in 94. I'm like, who could he, they have gotten? And he tries. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. He tries. Oh, Jay, as a very, a very enigmatic person, thanks to the, you know, cut out of the bag and the crying game. Uh, yeah. Like the, the, the Jay cast quite a specter uh, to his, look of everything you know and obviously mm -hmm. with the egyptian thing that we've always seen between you know the cleopatra thing like the the, the vibe from them is very i don't want to use the word androgynous but like it just it has that 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 quality that would look good coming out of an actor like jay but at the same time you need the performance part to go with it not just the look so Right. You could paint anybody up to look like Jay and they'd still be you'd bring some acting half underneath it. So there, there's parts where he does look scary, you know, where he's doling out some of the the discipline in that. But it is yeah. it's just it's presence. And yeah. I just and don't dubbed. think he yeah. he he had it yet here. Agreed. Not say, you know, I if you would have had a few more years before taking this role, I think he would have. But the fact that you have a newer actor and throw him into a role like this um mm -hmm. it is is a lot to ask for yeah nearly nearly any actor very yeah. few could but take like a, a, a but like an ethnically ambiguous person kind of like eric who's indian uh <laughs> but like i like I, I can imagine like a young benicio del toro in that part yeah sure right there in 90 right there in 94 too like oh, boy yeah. he, like he'd be a hot you know a semi-hot commodity i don't know how popular he was quite before he really hit mm -hmm. but like imagine his eyes his physical presence mm -hmm. his drawl or saying saying preposterous lines but you'd still get the screen presence of a guy like that or or not i know it's not of the time but like um like a young oscar isaac or something you know sure oh i don't know apocalypse burned his ass good he 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 tried and he sucked <laughs> no well no because he yeah. actually did a he did a very interesting turn as what, what was he wasn't the sheriff in nottingham he was king he was no, oh king john. Uh, the robin hood, robin king hood. john yeah, yeah. yeah. that's a fascinating i mean he wasn't in it much but no. it, he had that he had that like unpredictable energy and that's true like he he had like kind of a manic quality to him that I really yeah. enjoyed in that movie. So, uh, but uh, you, but he's next to a professional. Really... The Mark Strong is a professional movie villain. So uh, uh, tough. You're up against Mark Strong. So, yeah. true, true. Uh, X Men Apocalypse. Did you really need to bring that up? That killed. Yeah, we don't talk everybody. about that. That hey, killed so nearly everybody's Isaac. career. You bring Oscar Isaac and a pyramid together, and here we go. So yeah, well, he but was also really... he was also an incredible villain in X Machina. So. Um, yeah. Yes, he was. Subtle, yeah. Nuanced yeah. Villain in that too, so. yeah. Yeah. That's better. That's better. We can but wash I, but, that away with X. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the, as far as villain goes, uh, it is. It is. You're more scared of his soldiers than you really are of That's him. True. Yeah. Um. And again, it's just it's just 
uh, a presence, I think, lack of experience. It's nothing against him. Mm -hmm. He does mm -hmm. the best that they could, but they just weren't quite right. I know they were going for that effeminate type look, mm -hmm. uh, sure. but I think they could have accomplished it differently. But I don't watch this for that villain. He's almost... Uh, Ra's almost like a sub subplot to 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 what I'm interested in is is the village and you know the interaction with uh O'Neill and and him dealing with you know the the, the uh, tribes and and you know see, that whole story that stuff I don't see I enjoyed I yeah. enjoyed that stuff death. Yep, <laughs> I enjoyed I'm that stuff and the and the tech with the Egyptians, you know, the the helmets and that, and the soldiers part. That was the military part of them. Uh, that part I enjoyed. I didn't really watch it for for Ra, though. I watch it for pretty much everybody else. <laughs> so. Here is here is where I think. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could trust Roland Emmerich because I've never seen him do a sequel. I've never seen the second Independence Day, so I don't know how that turned out. But, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, like. <laughs> Here's the problem. This is the problem with okay. So seen worse, but it's rough. when when Alien when Alien came out with like I think it was around I don't know they had that huge quadrilogy box set like you you would open it and it was like it, it was just when there was four Alien movies yeah and, and I think I think maybe Alien vs Predator had come out at that point but that's it like it was basically Alien was still kind of this self contained thing I was listening to the audio commentary with Sigourney Weaver and Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott was talking about the uh, the space jockey and what he wanted to do with the space jockey. And I just was listening to the whole commentary like, oh, God, please don't do whatever it is you're thinking about doing because that's so stupid. The best part about the space jockey in Alien is that it's completely mysterious and it's never touched on again. Right. Like mm -hmm. my fear, my fear is it would it, it would get Ridley Scott eyes like IE Prometheus and stuff where we would learn more about the alien species that Ra was. Like, I kind of just like the idea of this rogue alien dude that came across a civilization he could conquer and happened to just create Egyptian mythology while he did it. And he's kind of a one-off. Like, I would be really mm -hmm. scared that a Stargate sequel would have been like, well, who's this alien? Where does Ra come from? And, and is Ra's family mad at Jack O'Neill now? You know what I mean? Like, it would have been... I would be I would be worried about that. Like, I I, th I think sci-fi has this problem. You can say that with the Matrix movies. You can say that with a lot of stuff that they just have to keep explaining themselves. And it's kind of like I wish sometimes. I think the 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 great part about Stargate being a one-off in terms of the movies, and I don't know anything about the show, is that you do kind of get the, it. It reminded me a lot of Star Trek Five. Like mm. like I think if Star Trek Five was made today. Star Trek mm. six would be about exploring that one God. What does God need with the starship? Like they would start ex explaining like where that guy came from and what his story is and who his dad is and whatever, you know, whereas like the, even though Star Trek has a terrible movie, like I love the idea that this, there's kind of like this rogue dude out there, completely unexplainable, has no mythology. He's just, he's just an alien God. That's like, hey, I need a spaceship so I can go tear some shit up in the galaxy. And then they kill him and it's over. This is kind of the same thing. We don't really need to know anything about Ra. We don't need to know where he came from or like what his lineage is or how he got his name or whatever. Like, it's just kind of nice to have this isolated, very unique 
person and then that's it. You know, I'm afraid like sequels would have probably exposed that way too much. Mm. The TV shows uh, explore a lot more in what his race is, but at the same time, it was very fascinating. Uh, and they did a lot of things with it. I mean, the show ran forever and it's spinoffs. It was the longest running show for quite some time. Um, Remember when the the show, remember when Farscape got canceled and they just put the entire cast of Farscape on Stargate? I remember that. (laughs) Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. They they got jobs, man. (laughs) Yeah, they pay the bills. Um, But it was in what I liked about the TV series is one, uh, it was a little bit more campy. They used it as a almost as an anthology series because as they would go through the Stargate, yeah, you had the subplot of the uh, Gaul, who are the name of his alien race, uh, running through it. But uh, they were there were a lot of like self-contained stories too that were almost like just little mini like uh, you know kind of like a, an amazing stories type of thing where they travel through the Stargate to a civilization to help them out. And it'd be a story or like old school Star Trek is the way it played out to where they'd be mm-hmm. visiting a planet. And yeah. you could sometimes they would barely mention the bad guys and other times they played an integral role. And that's how I think the show survived so long as it kept reinventing itself a bit of what well, story I, it was. I should have given it a shot because I watched two episodes. I watched the pilot and you could tell the pilot was made for showtime because at, for no reason whatsoever at the very end it was a bunch of naked egyptian women running around <laughs> yeah but, well, but hold, also, on, hold on hold on where, where is that found again let me write this down <laughs> but i watched Got the it. second episode and like they open a stargate and they go to like genghis khan land and it's like mm-hmm. oh <laughs> this is what they're gonna do with this yeah like it was just kind of like but i mean talk about a com- another thing another compelling um part of this movie is that like, we know this is only one of the openings for the Stargate. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're in your head, you're like, Oh man, they could go anywhere in the galaxy or wherever these Stargates are from or, you know, and, and like I said, I don't necessarily want to know who built the Stargates, but you know, it just, it, it makes a lot of fun stuff in your head. That's maybe another reason why I didn't want to watch the show is because sure. I kind of enjoy when I watch this, I kind of enjoyed creating my own head cannon of where this could have gone you know and mm-hmm. that stuff isn't so explained to me anymore you know to the point of uh where it it loses its mystery and that's that's another that's another positive about independence day now like i said i haven't seen the sequel but <laughs> keep it that what way. i really what i really like about <laughs> keep it that way please what I really like about that movie is there were these hints that there is this civilization that exists that we're only seeing the surface of, yep. mm-hmm. you know, like I, I love the scene where Goldblum and Will Smith go into the mothership mm-hmm. and you see like, you see like armies and you see like different types of ships we haven't seen before. And you obviously know that there's stuff going on with this alien race and they never explain it. And so it's kind of fun to be like, well, what is this alien race like? And to me, sometimes that's the best type of storytelling is leave them wanting more like, yeah, you know, like, oh, like this is something I can imagine they're doing. Um, and I have this problem with all things, not just um, not just sci-fi. But I mean, for example, I my second favorite movie of all time is Heat. And everyone's been telling me to read Heat 2, you know, mm. the book that, that Michael Mann did. I read the first. I read the first part. Uh, probably it's like eight chapters or something. It's a huge book. And 
I was like, I can't do it because it, even someone like Michael Mann, who I can trust, you know, I just don't, I don't even trust the create. Like I said, I don't trust George Lucas anymore. I don't trust James Cameron anymore. I don't trust a lot. Ridley Scott. I don't trust these people that have these things they created and then try to over explain it. Heat tube does so much to destroy the headcanon you've created like mm. the imaginary world that blooms in your head. It yeah. just spends so much time telling you what happened exactly after the end credits rolled. And it's like, yeah, you're okay. killing some of the mystery of it. You know what I mean? Like you're killing. Yeah. I see the, it, bringing this back to Stargate. I, I'm in that place of like the balance of scale between, and you brought up the word camp. Will is like, was this movie, like the movie is preposterous and ludicrous and silly, but it's, it's like, but like, preposterous but is it camp quite enough like i'm not saying 66 batman but it'd be nice versus headcanon of like can you be you know creative enough and unique enough where you inspire a viewer to want to like you said make some headcanon versus let's just camp it up and not worry about having too much in our head like those 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 wobbling scales in this movie is is tricky because i could see this movie being well embraced either way of like make this sure. i don't want to say serious but like have a place where headcanon is all you get and like you just have a good time and this has life beyond that because of the intellectual inspiration and then maybe because of the tv show um where you camp it up a little bit where it, it, hey we're having fun here just keep having fun with us here's some more adventures for you i i don't know which route would have worked you know because like either one like you you have kurt russell kind of doing the deadly serious like just be be a tough guy and if if you let spader off the chain we've all seen boston legal in the practice sure. where he could get sillier if we ever wanted him to which my goodness would be great so i yeah it's a this is a weird tricky wobbly movie between those two things well you can look at who they cast as kurt russell you know, in the show, they went with MacGyver for God's sake, who's just kind of yeah. A, they yeah. they lighten him up in a brain. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but again, the show is different than the film, but it plays around in this world quite a bit, and that's what appealed to me was it? And it mm-hmm. Like any show, some episodes land better than others, but they kept building and you know uh, evolving the story and the mythos and, and the, the bad guys to where it didn't take away at all from the first film. In fact, you could say it, this is like an alternate, even though you have the characters in that, because mm-hmm. it, it, it's an alternate telling because it is quite, it, it does take more camp. It does go a lot more action in the TV show than in there is in the movie. So it, it really is kind of almost a reimagining of sorts. Of, do you feel uh, that? Do you feel that's a better route? Like here, I am talking TV, about the scales yeah. of, yeah. But it should the movie have been matching more of the TV? Like come out, come out mm. more camp, or is this a good start? Well, well, this is a good start, uh, especially when you know later when we found out later that there were going to be two other movies. This isn't a bad start for your first of a trilogy, absolutely, because. Yeah. Because yeah, totally you're introducing agree. stuff, you know, you don't have to put, I mean, cause if you even look at our bad guys for the scale that this film is on, it's actually done on a smaller budget because you don't see a huge amount of the bad guys. You get only two ships. You only get, you know, guards here who are masked. So you can get the same guys to play more than one character, you know, but there's a lot of seeds dropped in this film 
And so I think you you want to play it a little bit more serious. And then you move into the second one to where, well, you're you're comfortable with these characters now. Now we can have a little, maybe camp it up a little more, you know, um, and take that approach with it. The, for the first film, though, for this film to to sell you on the world, they couldn't go full camp. I think in order for this wonderful world that they have the characters in, if you went full camp, people wouldn't really buy into the rest of the world. Whereas the way they play it here, mm-hmm. as we mentioned, it feels more like true sci-fi than just someone doing a star Wars rehash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Sure. And yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where I circle back to where I started of like, I feel like, who I, I forget who the writers were in this now i gotta look it up and give them proper credit here quick uh this is oh of course it's devlin and emmerich who always yeah. team up on that but um yeah like i get the burroughs feels where like i know it's not the same as john carter but you go to another place and you're a bit you know you're better than the natives and or you have a little you know just or um uh just that idea of what what can you do on another planet what would the civilizations be that clash the geopolitics that happen when when you get there and yeah, so I, I I dig it now. I I it's crazy that I appreciate it more now than I did then, and happy happy to do so because like now twenty whatever years later, twenty eight years later, the like we like we said when we started, we've got a nice you know do it on screen with pro, you know practical effects throwback that just dabbles in enough CGI to dazzle you and still like I would. I, we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of something like the mask of Zorro where like there's all practical effects and it's just a little bit of CGI mm-hmm. to Matt use some backgrounds and oh it's so mm-hmm. damn good and like you don't make movies like that anymore and to that end they don't make movies like Stargate anymore so no if they would have if they would have did Stargate now it would have been all virtual set that almost oh, yeah. all the it would have done and not saying it's wrong but I'm just saying they would have you wouldn't have they actually built that that throne room <laughs> you yeah, know yeah. i mean that the yeah. statues and stuff are actually there yeah. and there's not a whole lot of sets either but they build enough for you and give you enough and the fact it's all practical just helps helps trigger that imagination that will was saying that i want to i want to breathe i want to breathe in this world and deal with this mythology i want i want you know i i've got all kinds of stories now just from this so i really wish we could find a way. And even as the Marvel shill, I'm saying this, like I wish mm-hmm. we could find a way to get back to using a lot more practical effects, you know, because I, oh, I think every now, yeah. every, every now and then they'll throw something at you. But the problem is that since there's no balance to it, like mm-hmm. an example, two examples I have, one is from Ghostbusters afterlife. Like I was, there's a, there's a, <laughs> okay. there's a scene in that horrendous piece of shit movie where, um, during the product placement sequence where <laughs> Paul Rudd is in uh, Paul Rudd's in Walmart, right? Buying yeah. Baskin Robbins, ding, ding, ding. And um, they had a, whatever the dog is, what's the dog called? Gozer or something? No, Gozer yeah. is the, whatever the dog oh, no, is. The, the demon dog. Hellhound. Gozer? Yeah. yeah. Hellhound. They had a Hellhound puppet that Paul Rudd was interacting with. And that's great. But the problem is, is that he interacts with it for about 13 seconds and then the rest of it is CGI. So there's no balance where you kind of, unfortunately, it pulls you out and says, look, this is a, this is an actual creature we built. And then you lose the illusion a little bit because the rest of it's CGI. Like they, they, they can't find that way to like, for instance, in, in Stargate, 
the entire time there is never a um, CGI, whatever the hell those horses were. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, Every right. one of those little weird horse things was a puppet, you know, like, and so you just bought it the whole time that it was a puppet. And the other example I, I come up with is these new Jurassic World movies. Every now and then they'll have mm-hmm. like a dinosaur head pop up and you're like, oh, that's practical. I can tell. But it's bringing attention to, to it that it's practical because 98% of the time it's a visual effect. It, it, yeah, it doesn't for me, have it's, that thing, you know? Yeah, for me, it's the, um, I'll say it like this. Like, they're effects. They can't be the whole thing. Like, we've got too many movies now where everything, other than the actors themselves, are... Sometimes. <laughs> or something yeah yeah yeah. like i see the behind the scenes of like thor love and thunder and you have some scenes where maybe a couple of chairs they sit in are real and the actors are real than everything around it between the characters of visual effects and of course the backgrounds and sets are just so damn fake where it just you can't make it all look good whereas old school movies where there's a little dash here a little dash there you can have all these practical sets and physical locations that people interact with and then just a dollop here a dollop there spielberg did it great in jurassic park where you just just a little bit is all you need just enhance things it can't take over things well, that's a that's a Lucas problem, and that's why I don't like Avatar two. Also, because mm. there is absolutely nothing real in Avatar two. I, I mean, like, so not even the actor. Like, the actors are there doing the stop the the cap, motion capture, but I mean, there's just nothing to tack to, to have to grab onto tactile wise, and that disturbs me, even as a Marvel guy. Because at least every now and then Marvel will like to me, like the Ant-Man movies are a great example of that's when they'll use miniatures and set design to emphasize size. Like a lot of, a lot of the stuff in those two Ant-Man movies are uh, not practical effects, but set design where like, you know, something will be miniaturized like the bathtub, you know, is like, that was like a real bathtub. They figured out how to, you know, do that and show him in a small capacity in a bathtub and you can get more details because obviously as you shrink, the details are more expanded, you know, like you see the cracks in the linoleum and things like that. But yeah, but even, even Marvel for the most part is like, you know, even some of the best parts of Wakanda forever, like there's a couple moments where Namor is like flying and you're like, well, this is clearly a computer. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? And it, it's, it's disturbing, but that all started with Lucas with the prequels where That's you'd true. watch, the, you'd watch the behind the scenes and it's literally just, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman walking in an wow. endless green valley, you know, with nothing, absolutely nothing, you know, There's, and it's, it's, it's weird. It, it's, it's not just because of that. Uh, I mean, Lucas kind of showed you could do it, but also is the, what also it is, is budget, but even more so is Fair turnaround. Point. And, and what's worse. And it's the worst. It's actually the double-edged sword is, the turnaround time. And I had, yeah. I, I forgot who I was talking to. I think it was the director, Donald Farmer or whatever. Uh, he, uh, of his, cause he's been doing B films and that for a long time. But uh, it's one of those things where you look at the, how long it used to take to make a single film, mm-hmm. which was two, two to three years. Mm-hmm. And people right. say, Oh, well that, Oh, well that's now I'm like, no, that's production. That's, mm-hmm. that's not talking necessarily the pre-planning or post that's literally it could take it could take two years for them all together after they get reshoots and that done to put it to film get the film developed all of that how long it took 
versus today. You've got an average turnaround time of your big quote unquote blockbuster film, 18 months. Yeah. From yep. from when they take the first, you know, action to when it hits the screen yeah. is and 18 rushing, months. And we're seeing well, it. Well, and they're rushing because what they do now, and this is this is the problem with a really heavy effects film like Star Trek the Motion Picture. We don't think about it now because that was all practical effects because there wasn't CGI. But the problem with that film and the reason why they had so many problems putting that film together is because they had the release date first before they even had the movie constructed. Right. And that's, that is definitely the case with a lot of these things. I mean, yeah, the business side gets in the way for sure. Well, even if you look at, even if you look at Marvel, like the first Iron Man compared to what you see in like something like Endgame. You know, like the visual effects, like they look much better in 2008 than they look today. And that is because of wow, that. Stan rushing, Winston, you know? they're making real costumes, too, for exactly you know, 60 percent exactly. of that, too. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that is what we're losing. I think we're losing that. And I get uh, I get the I get the artist in the business side accepting sure. shortcuts. Or, or if we want to call them shortcuts, if we want to call them innovation, like trying a new thing or getting something to make something that was difficult and expensive easier. I get that. But at what expense or what, what well, price of the product, not price in the checkbook? Well, we talked about this, too, with my favorite film of the year so far. Uh, nope. Mm. Even that, even that, which was not hugely a visual movie in terms of visual effects. I mean, it is, it is a lot more than say us or get out. Yeah. But even, even that costs 70 million. You know what I mean? Like, and that's a movie that has a lot of like jaws to it where you don't see stuff. Like I would imagine like if Jordan Peele wanted to make Nope and it was a lot more transparent, like you're seeing the creature a lot more unlike Allah, unlike jaws, right? Like the movie probably would cost like 150 million or something because they'd have to keep those effects going, you know, whereas mm-hmm. like Jordan Peele was using things like cloud cover and mountains and darkness and things to, sh- to hide the monster. But that still costs 70 million. That's incredible. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, it's, that's, it's a, like, that's a lot that's of a, fucking money. Like, you know, but that's a bargain by today's standards though. Like 70. Well, no, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. But that's still a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, you, you know, I mean, how much was, well, I guess with inflation, but like Stargate, Cost what about fifty million? You know, that's like, a good uh, question. Budget, budget, budget. Fifty five. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. today would that be a hundred, probably at best. Yeah. yeah. And, and the just, park budget. You know, I bet that's yeah. nothing as well. Like at forty something. Well, and the great thing about Jurassic Park because it's so revolutionary is because they were going to do stop motion. Like sixty three. Like I'll, I'll jump in. Sixty three million for the first Jurassic. Well, the, the amazing thing about Jurassic Park is, like I said, they were going to use a lot of stop motion and they were going to use traditional special effects techniques. And there were a bunch of dudes that were like, I know we can do this on CGI and no one was going to buy it. So they did it all for free on the side and then showed Spielberg one day and was like, look, we can do this. And he's like, holy shit. Okay, great. Let's do it. And then history is made. But like that took someone like working on the side without getting paid just to prove that a technology could be used. And, and then when you watch Jurassic park, they don't use that technology that much. There's not a lot of CGI in that movie. It's like it's, eight, eight minutes of dinosaurs in that movie or something. It's crazy. Like when you think about it, but you know, it's that, that goes along with, uh, 
in a, actually it was a one of the good changes that they did to the uh, prequels mm-hmm. was when the guys did on their own replaced parrot Yoda, fuck that puppet. I know. With, sorry, that that puppet was 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 horrible. Oh, in episode that. one. In episode yeah. one, the oh, Yoda, God, it looked like it had dementia. Like it was just it sitting did. there, like. And they like, were going yeah. to use another puppet, if I remember the story right. But guys on the side took scans of the original Yoda and showed, "No, look, we could make it look like the original Yoda was CGI." If you don't want to do a puppet, do this instead of that. And mm-hmm. then they replaced him. I think in the re-release or whatever of yeah, they Phantom sure Menace, they actually replaced him with the cgi yoda because it looked far better than the puppet and in in that case that was a good change using Mm -hmm. cgi so i mean i'm not against i'm not against cgi at all for sets in that if done right the problem is lord of the rings lord of the rings he's putting he's putting actors in orc costumes and urukai costumes and goblins and then for depth He'll do his massive technology from Weta to like volumize it, but up front, exactly. it's dudes in costumes and it looks amazing. Well, yeah, and, right. and I, that's why. Yeah, I I forgot what I was going to say, so never mind. <laughs> I had something in my head about that. About oh yeah, I can't say that I'm totally against fixing things. I, I generally want work to stand on its own. You know what I mean? Um, that's what I want, but. Um, like, for example, like Blade Runner, when Ridley Scott did the final cut, he didn't really add too much, but he fixed, like, there was a scene when Zora, the replica, gets shot in the glass. You could see the stuntman's face. So it was obviously supposed to be this stat- statuesque model, <laughs> and it's got a, a guy with a beard getting shot, you know? He used that to fix that. I'm, I guess I'm okay with that, but to me, I just like films as they are, flaws and all, and build yeah. upon it for the next one. I don't know. That's I'll, go, my I'll, go, I'll go back to my. I'll go back to my thing. It's um. It can't be the whole thing. It just has to enhance little bits that are there. You know. Yeah. The, the the best the best movies, even sci fi, fantasy, or others, are the ones that are competently able to use both and blend them. Not Perfect. go all one, Agreed. all both. I think films need a, a an amount amalgamation of both in order to sell your audience more. Because if you've got just enough realistic stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Your eye can forgive some of the CGI. The best yeah, CGI absolutely. I always like. The best CGI I always like are the ones that are where they're putting in backgrounds and stuff, and you don't even know. Like they're not in that city; they're in a different mm-hmm. city, but they do a digital map background. Or yeah, like in uh, I love one of my all-time favorite modern uh, action sci-fi films is Mad Max: Fury Road. I love that mm-hmm. movie. Very I love that movie. Very I love little. that movie. There's very, but it's used, but it's used it effectively yeah. in there for the most part to where like some of the backgrounds and stuff where they shot are modified to make it look like a vast desert or whatnot. But you can't tell. You think right. they're in the it's, desert because it's, it's, it's in know? the back. It's depth. It's not it, up front. It's in the, right. It's in the back. It's blended with live action. I think that's where it works the best. Well, and that's the double-edged sword with visual effects is because when you're going to do something fantastical, like a superhero movie in which things are not based in reality to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, And and then you have something like uh, a 1917 or a first man or um, an ex machina where it's 
not bringing attention to itself where the visual effects mm. are a little bit more seamless because it's a different type of story being tell, told. That's kind of the double-edged sword is mm-hmm. people want superhero movies, but then at the same time they can realize this stuff is rushed and not being produced to the top notch. But at the same time, you can't really, you can't really, I mean, other than maybe like unbreakable, like a one-off, you can't really make a superhero film without those kind of visuals. You know what I mean? Oh, like no. you have to. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, it's, it's tough. It's yeah. tough. Yeah. Well, I'm like, just saying, you, you, can't, take, you can't have Spider-Man going yeah. through the city. Like you cannot make that practical. You no, could, but you can't do tricky. it for three hours. Yeah. Like you can't, you know what I mean? No, like, that's true. It, so it takes it, it, Well, we've talked about this in the end show. You just, street level heroes you can tame down like take out the squirrel suit scene in matt reeves's the batman and you have a pretty darn practical movie which is awesome absolutely yeah it still costs a lot of money but uh, you're right when you to go big though like we're never going to see a superman movie without a digital cape again you know like that's right. we're, we're there and we're and we're we're kind of never going back so it's tricky. That, that's the, that's the tough part is like we need to find that I mean, what what could we say? Could Lord of the Rings truly be the last epic franchise that did not rely solely on CGI in terms of the fantastical elements? I mean, because yet, yet, we, yet we still had a ton. You know, it's crazy. It but, had a ton, but not to the point yeah. of you know that was all of the original Star Wars trilogy where it was a Mark, component what do you think? of the story. Mark, what do you um, think on that one? You got more history than us. <laughs> Is it the last? It. On that scale, yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, it probably is. Now, uh, to go back to Will, uh, I will say Avatar 2, you'll be surprised actually just how much practical he used in that. I agree. As far as miniatures in that go. Um, no, I'm sure it, there is. I, I, there's there's a lot more in there because, uh, it, it, you know, we had that discussion with Avatar before is Cameron's far more of a technical director than he is an actual like narrative director technical wise mm-hmm. it's yeah, blah it, it's like blah but i think because of the way budgets are and the cost of things now yeah unfortunately i don't think you could do I, you could do it it wouldn't be affordable yeah nowadays we're taking seriously uh, uh, on that scale, yeah. you uh, unfortunately, I, I'm not saying it couldn't be done. The artistry is definitely there, but mm-hmm. if you want to go like Age of Ultron type stuff and have a whole bunch of actual stop motion miniatures that you composite onto a miniature city or whatnot, I think it's just going to cost more. It's why we see CGI. It's going to cost mm-hmm. more, but more importantly, it's going to take more time. And right now, time. Yeah is what seems to be very important with the business end, along with what do you make that opening weekend? Whatever you make in the residuals after opening weekend, great. But opening weekend is the bomb. We have to make that opening weekend. And Mm -hmm. by doing what you said, like like they did with Star Trek, the motion picture, establishing your your release date before you shoot is, is going to sacrifice. Something's going to be sacrificed during that film and unfortunately it's probably going to be the art and the effects are going to be mm-hmm. sacrificed for well, making that deadline but you got to find a middle ground too because to me the reason why avatar 2 is so disappointing is because it, when i was done i was like this took 12 years to make this you know what i mean like i think <laughs> I, you have to find wait, wait till you see some of the behind the scenes stuff because we know it's coming you'll see 12 years of 
No, no, I, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying yeah. they're lazy. I'm not saying it's. I, I wish more is, movies took three. I'm with Mark. I wish more movies. No, no, took that's three years. what I'm saying. Yeah. Don't take twelve years. Take three to four. Right. I'm fine yeah, with three, that. Four. Like I'm with you there. I'm with you there. That's totally fine. Because because I think also after a while, you know, you're just thinking, okay, well, if I'm waiting twelve years for this, this this yeah. better be the most exquisitely produced thing I've ever seen, and I just don't buy that with Avatar. I, well, I, yeah, his his environments are excellent. the The biggest problem with Cameron is that he used to do the mixture of both. I mean, Terminator Two um, mm-hmm. is a phenomenal mixture, you know. And now mm-hmm. I feel like yes, there is some practical stuff, but I don't know. I just well, I mean, we I think we're there that, with, but, yeah. yeah. To circle to circle it back to Stargate, we're kind of there with Roland Emmerich, where he, between Stargate and Independence Day. Like he had, like he hit a wheelhouse of, of having practical, well thought out designs, big human stories, and then he hits Godzilla, and it's been downhill. I mean, little, I mean, Moonfall. I don't mind game for tomorrow, but, but yeah, by the time you get to Moonfall, we're like he's just gone. Like, there's no going back to the old Roland Emmerich. We're just it's it's all spectacle for pure spectacle's sake because that's all he's got now. But, but I feel like a ton of filmmakers do that. Like Shyamalan was a twist artist and that's how he got to start. And then once he got bigger and grander, he found out he couldn't do it. And then he's back to being a twist artist and that's all he's got. Um, I, yeah, we got to see what James, if James Cameron, look at Robert Zemeckis, Robert Zemeckis made contact oh Forrest Gump back to the future. And now he found his little thing of where he can't shake the performance capture stuff. And I get that that's a cutting edge, cool thing, but we've seen other people do that just better than you, Robert, where maybe you need to come back and do something else. Come back to where you were good. He tried for like a moment. He did flight and he were like, Oh, maybe uh, I'm getting some Zemeckis. And yeah. then it's like, Nope, and, Nope. Back to the. Yeah. And he was so fucking good in flight the- too. Oh yeah. I know. <laughs> Frustrating. Or whatever the hell it was called. Whatever was that movie called? Marwin triplets of Marwin. Um, welcome to Marwin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and, and I was just like, Oh, he's back on his shit. And, um, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't. I, Pinocchio. The might, the mighty have fallen. Oof. In that case, mm-hmm. my God. Anyways, okay. well, uh, we know that uh, both me and Mark have to go here shortly. So let's uh, let's okay. final thoughts. Final thoughts on this. I'm good to go. Happy for the throwback. Uh, it's gone. It's gotten better for me with age, and I'm happy to reach that point. Yeah, I will say uh, Stargate is one. If you're looking for something a little different in your early sci, your '90s sci-fi, check it out. Uh, while not action-packed, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff here that I wish Roland Emmerich would have clung on to, then abandoned after Independence Day. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I enjoyed watching this. I was a little underwhelmed story-wise and character-wise, but I was enchanted by the production design and the art design. And mm-hmm. the greatest thing you can say about this, because I never will watch the show probably, because I just don't watch TV anymore, is... This left me wanting more, and I will now be able to enjoy that in my personal head canon. And I think that's a great that's a great nice sign yeah. of storytelling. I think is that it it left me wanting more, and that's good. So, yeah. Mark, uh, hit our listeners with the socials. Uh, SpecialMarkProductions.com. All your movie man needs. I got links there to all my stuff: Instagram, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, TikTok. Uh, I do one minute reviews on TikTok. Of wide and they film. are, and they are the best women reviews I see on TikTok. What <laughs> you pack into a minute is the best oh. I've ever seen. It's so damn good. Uh, 
Well, yeah, thank you. I, I'm glad you do enjoy them. Uh, I'm very yeah, anti TikTok on this show, but I will support. Uh, I won't support Don on TikTok, but I will support Mark. So. <laughs> well, ah, go figure. Go figure. I'll, I'll support everybody. But yeah, just check me out there. I do a lot of independent film stuff, uh, reviews as well on YouTube and such. So I do a variety of things. I can't pick a lane. So. Nice. All right. Well, uh, in terms of us at Cinephile Hissy Fit, follow us on Twitter at Cinephile Fit. You can follow us on Facebook, Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, and on Instagram at Cinephile Hissy Fits. Um, we actually posted about Stargate. Uh, so there's some awesome CD-ROM out there of Stargate that I hope someone can find and put on YouTube for me. That'd be great. Also, find us both on Letterboxd. Thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile His Fit is a 25YL media podcast brought to you by RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. We are also on Rotten Tomatoes, the new Banana Meter, and we are charter members of the Independent Film Critics of America. If you enjoyed this show, Rubination's Radio Network has more where that came from with wonderful programs and interesting hosts. Our show and others are available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.